0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 28th of December. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. A Sydney man, his wife and his brother have been killed in southern Lebanon after their building was hit by an apparent Israeli airstrike. Family members say 27-year-old electrician and construction worker Ibrahim Bazi had travelled to Lebanon to visit his wife, who'd recently been given an Australian visa. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says it's seeking confirmation of the reports. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem.
1: Well, what we know so far is that there was an Israeli airstrike in a village called Binjubal which is in southern Lebanon and at the time inside that village was a 27 year old Lebanese Australian. His name is Ibrahim Bazi. He had travelled to Lebanon uh, just in the last few days to visit his wife Sharuk, who was in this village and it was there that he was going to meet his wife and help her Come back to Australia, but while they were there, they were hit by this Israeli airstrike inside a building and killed. At the same time, Ibrahim's brother Ali Bazi, was also in the building and was killed. Now, Hezbollah has claimed Ali was a fighter and Hezbollah has been the ongoing target of Israeli airstrikes and attacks in southern Lebanon since the October 7 attack by Hamas. So it doesn't appear that Ibrahim Bazi or his wife Sharuk, there's no suggestion that they were Hezbollah fighters, but Ali Bazi, the brother, was and all three of them today were Farewelled at a funeral in this southern Lebanese town. Their caskets were draped in the Hezbollah flag. And people in the village have expressed great shock that this usually quiet area has been hit by this airstrike. What's the Israeli military saying about the incident? Well, they're not saying a lot. I've put questions to them today and they haven't answered any of my specific questions apart from saying that over the last several days there have been a number of increasing Israeli airstrikes on Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. Uh, They've provided some footage saying that they hit a Hezbollah building and that they also were striking other areas in Lebanon as well. But the context around this is over the last few days we have seen quite an escalation on this border, the northern border of Israel, which is the southern border of Lebanon. Uh, In fact, today, in the last 24 hours, we have seen more than 100 rockets and mortar shells that have been fired out of Lebanon into Israel. And in response, Israel's been retaliating with airstrikes back into Lebanon. That's the most intense fighting we have seen on that front of this war since October 7. And Hezbollah says it's firing into Israel in solidarity with Hamas and Palestinians.
0: Alison Horne in Jerusalem. As people flock to our beaches and waterways over summer, at least 21 people have drowned so far this month. Lifesavers are warning that the Christmas New Year period is the deadliest time and they're urging people to be careful. Gavin Coote reports.
2: When Johnny made the trek from Sydney's western suburbs to Bondi Beach yesterday, he didn't think surf conditions would be so rough. We're expecting it really calm and good weather. Yes, yeah, it looks a bit dangerous for the kids to play, but good for surfer. Surf lifesavers are concerned at the number of drowning deaths this summer. Since the start of December, there have been 21 deaths across the country. Justin Scar is the CEO of Royal Life Saving Australia.
3: Traditionally, the period between Christmas and New Year is the deadliest, and when you combine, you know, significant rainfall, flash flooding, and and increasingly hot weather as we approach New Year's Day. It, It's certainly, uh, unfortunately, been a recipe for disaster.
2: Justin Scar says many rivers, lakes and dams across the country have more water than in previous years. And with lots of water moving downstream, that's posing dangers for swimmers.
3: Drowning was tracking reasonably well, certainly lower than last year, right up until Boxing Day. The Boxing Day was an incredibly tragic period on waterways. There were a number of drowning deaths related to boating, Um, there were some flood-related incidents and some incidents on beaches while people were recreating. Uh, So that combined puts us uh, fairly well on the five-year average, which is um, just tragic.
2: Professor Rob Brander, also known as Dr Rip, is a beach safety researcher and says problems often arise when swimmers become complacent.
4: A lot of people just go and they jump in the water and they, they don't even think about safety. I think safety has to be just like you wouldn't cross a road without looking both ways, you, you don't go in any water body without first thinking "But is it safe or not. And and also be aware of your own abilities, your own capabilities and your own experience with that water waterway itself. And be mindful that water is dynamic. Water is always moving.
2: Justin Scar from Royal Life Saving Australia stresses the need for those swimming during their travels throughout summer to get across local water conditions.
3: Perhaps you're in an unfamiliar location, you're holidaying. It's really important to talk to the perhaps the caravan park operator, uh, to talk to the local information service, to seek out the place in that local community that is the safest place to swim. If you're not a strong swimmer, you need to stay very, very close to the bank, uh, particularly in inland waterways where you can't see the bottom, you can't see the current, you might not see floating debris moving through the watercourse. It's It's really inherently dangerous. You need to stay close to the bank or perhaps use the local community swimming pool. And, of course, watch your children constantly around water. Justin Scar
0: from the Royal Life Saving Australia, ending that report by Gavin Coote and Kathleen Ferguson. Almost 8,000 migrants are making their way through Mexico in the hope of reaching the United States. Their journey comes as the US Secretary of State prepares to discuss how to curb mass migration with Mexico's president. It's an issue that could shape next year's US presidential election. his North America correspondent Carrington Clark.
4: Rosa from El Salvador is one of an estimated 8,000 migrants traveling together towards the US border.
5: I want the politicians to touch their hearts because many of us are tired without eating and with blisters on our feet. We walk 30 kilometers per day. I don't know how many we've walked through now. So I ask them to touch their hearts.
4: The scale of the crisis on the United States southern border is hard to comprehend. More than two and a half million migrants have arrived this year. Although they come through Mexico, the vast majority aren't from there. They're coming from Central American countries like El Salvador, but also include people from Africa and Asia who first fly to South or Central America before making the journey north. Mexican activists and leader of this migrant caravan, Luis Garcia Villagran, says the asylum seekers are being treated as a political problem.
2: The government of the United States will give over $300 million to Mexico to curb migration. It translates into giving money to Mexico to deport and detain all these people, poor
4: people, people who haven't had money to move forward. In the United States, it's a major political issue. Republican politicians are piling on the pressure to the Biden administration to do something to solve it. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with the Mexican president to discuss the issue. Last week, the US president spoke with his Mexican counterpart, with both agreeing more enforcement is necessary on the border. But it's not just on the border where it's causing political problems. New York City says it spent more than $3 billion in the past two years dealing with its own migrant crisis, many of whom were flown to the city on flights paid for by the state of Texas. New York's Mayor Eric Adams says his constituents are angry and Washington has left him in the lurch.
1: 4,000 people came to our city last week. We have to food, house, clothe, educate.
4: 8,000 every two weeks, 16,000 a month. That's the federal government's job. As we head into an election year, the migrant crisis is one of the most contentious in the United States and President Biden is desperate for a solution. This is Carrington Clark in Washington reporting for AM.
0: Some of Australia's biggest names in music and the radio stations that play their songs are at loggerheads over a push to pay artists more. John Farnham, Gordy, and Tones and I are among hundreds of Australian musicians who've signed a letter calling for an end to the decades-old cap on the sound recording fees that radio stations pay to play their songs. However, the commercial radio industry is warning change could mean less Aussie music is played, and radio stations could even shut down, as Evelyn Manfield reports.
6: From singing songs to signing letters, Sophie Payton, better known as Gordy, is among a 500 strong list of Australian artists, including Tones and I, John Farnham, client liaison and gang of youths calling for radio stations to pay them more for playing their songs. We're not even necessarily, you know, talking definitely about some whopping increase, but it's just about removing those caps so we can adequately value how much those blanket licences should cost. Fees for the sound recording element of a song and the songwriting and composition element are paid separately. So if I wrote and recorded the song, then I own all the publishing royalties and I own all the recording royalties. But if I recorded a Taylor Swift song, for instance, she would own the publishing side of things and I would own the recording side of things. Under legislation, the sound recording fees that commercial stations pay are capped at no more than 1% of their gross revenue. Together, they pay about $4.5 million. For broadcasting sound recordings on the radio, the ABC, including Triple J, pays about $130,000. All around Australia, this is Triple J. In an average calendar year, they might get $1,500. The sound recording licence fees are collected by the Phonographic Performance Company of Australia, which distributes the revenue as income to record labels and artists. CEO Annabelle Hurd supports an end to the cap. We are simply asking for the right to negotiate a fair market rate For the use of those sound recordings. But the commercial radio industry says it already pays about 40 million in music fees, most of it to songwriters and composers rather than performers. The ABC says it too pays millions more in other music fees. Ford Ennels, who's the CEO of Industry Body Commercial Radio and Audio, warns that having to pay more for sound recordings could have dire consequences for hundreds of stations.
3: We'll see stations closing and that'll be bad news for listeners but it'll also be bad news for Australian music.
6: And he says if the cap goes, the quotas for how much local music stations have to play should too. Independent Senator David Pocock has drafted a bill to scrap the cap and a parliamentary inquiry is also examining the issue. A spokesperson for the Attorney-General's Department says removing the cap needs to be carefully considered as it'd impact a range of stakeholders including regional and
0: remote radio broadcasters. Evelyn Manfield reporting. Dirt roads, kangaroos, even emus There's some of the obstacles confronting drivers on outback roads. And they're challenges that the developers of driverless cars are having to take into account if there's any chance of automated vehicles becoming more common in regional areas. Oliver Gordon reports.
5: Tesla owner Hunter Murray lives in Alice Springs and often puts his car on autopilot mode when cruising up the vast straight Stuart Highway. The nine-year-old technology in his car is usually able to spot hazards a mile off. But earlier this month, it was taken by surprise.
7: An emu decided to jump out in front of me and uh, very, very fast. I actually have it on film, so I know exactly how fast it was. Only probably four or five frames on the film where he's come from the driver's side across um, and hit me fair square in the bonnet.
5: After the collision, Hunter's car pulled safely and slowly onto the side of the road.
7: The system isn't perfect. But like I said, neither was the driver in this case. I didn't see him
5: either. Autopilot mode in Hunter's vehicle, an older model Tesla, requires drivers to be touching the steering wheel at all times. It sits at level two on the five grade scale of autonomous vehicles. With level one cars requiring drivers' full attentiveness, and level five meaning full autonomy.
7: So, unfortunately, as my car will never probably be out of auto drive on city streets, it's perfect for highway driving, and in fact, it's it's saved me many times already.
5: But in other regional and remote areas, more advanced driverless cars are being tested. Amit Trivedi is part of a Queensland government team that's been test driving a level four driverless prototype called Zoe Two in Ipswich, Bundaberg and Mount Isa.
8: And we chose some of these uh, remote cities just to demonstrate that this technology is not for the cities alone.
5: Being a Level 4 prototype, Zoe 2 still has a steering wheel, but it's fully automated and able to operate on most road surfaces. The trials were largely a success, but threw up some challenges.
8: In Mount Isa, we had some extra polite drivers they were giving our vehicles, Zoe 2, automated car, a right of way, and our car gets a bit confused.
5: We hear about driverless cars. It seems to be the prospect that's always just around the corner, but never quite there. When will we start to see these vehicles that are fully automated? You know, there's a scale of one to five. When will we start to see the scale four vehicles start to become more commonplace?
8: Level three cars are already out there. So we got a Mercedes S-Class in Germany and and, uh, in California, Nevada and one more state in the United States. They're legal now. Our predictions are by 2031, between 2% to 10% of new cars sold in the market would be level three or above.
5: But before then, researchers like Amit Trevidi will have to find solutions to the unique obstacles of driving in Australia. Something his team is already working on.
8: We found three cases as a very unique to Australia. One was no surprise, our unique wildlife. Uh, second one was our very long tr- trucks, which is you know our uh, road trains. And third one was we have some country roads which are just four meter wide sealed roads, but we have a unsealed shoulder on both sides.
5: Meanwhile, in Central Australia, EV owner Hunter Murray's car is still at the garage recovering from its emu hit.
7: Really sorry to the emu. We made sure he was out out of misery. He hopes people aren't too spooked by his incident
5: and more people living in the outback start using driverless cars.
7: It's awesome. It's safe. I think you'll find in the the long, long run, the statistics will, will tell it all.
0: Electric vehicle owner Hunter Murray ending Oliver Gordon's report. If you're on holidays at the moment, have you found yourself checking work emails or thinking about your job? It's a problem for a lot of us and it can lead to poorer mental and physical health, as
9: Annie Guest reports. They might be on days off or holidays, but work is never far from the minds of these North Brisbane residents. During downtime, do, yep. you, do you find it hard to switch off?
2: Yeah, yeah I do. Yep. I think a lot of people do. It depends on the day. It's particularly stressful. I think about it before bed or even when I'm trying to do something else. And
1: I don't really get any downtime, so even having a couple of days off doesn't really feel like that I've had any time off. Because it's constantly go, go, go.
7: Yeah, I run my own business, so it's not possible to switch off.
9: These sentiments reinforce research by Dr Jane Giffkins from the Centre for Work, Organisation and Wellbeing at Griffith University.
10: I think it's been never more difficult to uh, switch up from work. Uh, This is for a variety of reasons.
9: These reasons include the availability of online connectivity and the post-COVID rise in working from home.
10: I would say it's very difficult for many workers to uh, psychologically detach or switch off from work, especially those who work in um, highly stressful work environments and professions. When we go home from work, we often replay in our minds, whether we're lying in bed or driving in the car home, all the conversations we might have had, all of the things we might need to do or have done or haven't done at work. So I think it's a problem for many workers. And Dr.
9: Gifkin says it's not only our minds that are affected.
10: When we're at work, and it is part of the normal stress response, we often have um, physiological and psychological activation, where we have heightened response, and we all know how that feels. But when we get home from work, or at the end of a shift, um, if we are unable to deactivate, or unwind, or downregulate, that means the stress response continues. um, continues and impacts on our bodies and our minds. Dr Gifkin's
9: research examined strategies used by more than 160 health workers that enabled them to stop worrying or thinking about their jobs after work and resulted in less fatigue and better physical and mental well-being. But she says such strategies can apply across the workforce.
10: Things like exercise, spending time with our family and friends, And um, leisure and hobby activities, so things like gardening, craft or uh,
9: making things. None of this is news to this Brisbane woman in her 50s who knows how to decompress after intense, fast-paced shifts in a school tuck shop.
6: Have a good book, do some hobbies, have some craft. That's what I like to do, bit of quilting.
0: A Brisbane resident ending that report from Annie Guest. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.